Good morning. Didn't know what to expect this morning. It's like a perfect storm. Our women are all gone, and time change, and then the snow. But it looks like most of us made it, so that's pretty good. We're going to be looking at Matthew 8, 23, and on to the end of the chapter this morning, so you can turn there. And while you're turning there, just two little notes here. Uh, one is that the, this, uh, the latest Table Talk magazine, the devotionals are at the back, so if you're grabbing one of those, then uh, the new ones are in, uh, as well as the books for Men's Theology Night. We're changing books this week, and so the box is there, and Tim has paid for those, so that's $20 to Tim for, uh, for those books. And so, Matthew 23 to 34, and as always, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the man marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And may God bless the reading of his perfect word. Some of you may remember in the year 2011, a tsunami that was caused by an earthquake just off of Japan, the Tohoku tsunami. And you remember that the nuclear reactor in Fukushima went down after that and it just triggered a series of domino effects, all triggered by a catastrophe at the sea. And I remember watching that footage, and at first it looks, when it's just out in the ocean, this earthquake happens and the tsunami starts to build momentum. And it's like this big swell in the ocean, but it's moving so slow that it almost looks harmless. Right? And then you see it hit the land, and you see how much damage it does. Buildings and cars and houses just get pushed around like they're little pieces of Lego at the power of the sea, the power of this water. And nuclear meltdown quite literally starts. The water and the sea can be a threatening thing, as we see in this passage. The start of this passage, verse 23 to 25, it says, And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Last week, Aaron Boswell was preaching, and uh, he left us off in verse 23, after talking about the cal- uh, counting the cost of following Jesus, how the disciples did follow Jesus in to the boat. And verse, 30, uh, verse 23 does indicate that even after being warned to count the cost, 
to think it through, the disciples did continue on and follow Jesus into the boat and now face a severe test of counting the cost. In carrying on with Christ, they are demonstrating a level of faith and trust in Him. And Matthew clearly wants us to draw our attention to the intensity of this storm. And the word here for the great storm in Greek is seismos. And maybe that means something to you in English. Seismos in the Bible is almost always used in reference to an earthquake. And this word has made its way into our English language. How do we measure earthquakes today? With a seismograph. If we talk about a seismic event, that means it's an earth-shattering or an earthquaking event, an earth-moving event. So this word does come down to us in our English. And so it is possible, based on the Greek grammar, it's possible that the storm could have been initiated by an earthquake, or that an earthquake was part of this storm. But however it started, it is clearly violent. We also know that this region by the sea here was known, uh, just based on its topography, it's known for high winds and storms that can suddenly come on you. Uh, the, the, the lake or the sea is below sea level, and then there's mountains, 9,200 Uh, feet above sea level right there with tunnels through it and so this whole sea is like a wind tunnel area that a wind can come through and without a moment's notice stir up the water and cause a violent storm and that's exactly what happened from fall from spring to fall strong winds do seasonally come whipping through this narrow wind tunnel and stir up the water and even the veteran fishermen knew to have respect for the water here If you've done any fishing or been on the water, it is good to respect the water. This last summer, uh, I went fishing with some of the kids, and we were going to go to Lake Winnipeg, and it's a big, scary lake. It's big water, and we just have a little 16-foot boat, and so we pick a calm day to go on the big water. And we got there, and even on a calm day, there were swells in the water, three to four feet with white caps. And one thing I knew is that we will not be fishing Lake Winnipeg today. Our boat's not designed to handle swells and water like that. We need to find something more calm. A 16-foot fishing boat is not designed for water like that. And the boats, in the time of Jesus and the disciples, they fished one out in the 1980s, and so we have a rough idea of what these boats look like. They appear to be about 20 to 30 feet long and about 7 feet wide, so not much bigger than our modern kind of recreational fishing boats. And these guys are out on a big, stormy sea in a boat like that. And the disciples, despite some of them being experienced fishermen, are scared for their lives because they know what water like this can do when these storms stir up suddenly. And they aren't projecting fear about the future, what may happen. They're crying out in instant peril. It's happening to them right now. They don't say, we may perish if this continues. They tell Jesus, we are perishing. They're being batted around as they speak. The water is overtaking the boat and they are being tossed around like a little plaything. And I think that's what Jesus wants to draw our attention to is imagine being in this storm. You're being batted around like a plaything in the sea that has no respect for you whatsoever. And so perhaps in a quiet moment they would have thought about the cost of following Jesus. He just warned them And here they are, in a very hands-on way of paying the cost of following Jesus on his next leg of the journey. 
And the fact that these men have to go wake Jesus up is in itself somewhat remarkable. We correctly, and even this morning in Sunday school we talked about it, speaking about the nature of Christ both in terms of him being truly God and truly man. These things are both true. And perhaps we can see even some of that in this exchange. We are about to see Christ's divine nature as he commands his creation. He commands the weather. And yet we also see his humanity in the fact that he's sleeping. He's tired. He's fast asleep in this boat. And he's sleeping through a whole ordeal. But again, because everything, every last detail of Christ's ministry is intentional and designed to bring up imagery and, and symbols and theological meanings and connections to the whole story of redemption, we have to think about the significance of what's going on here. Not just the facts, but what's the significance of it. And if you know your Bible well, perhaps you're already thinking of a similar accounting to this in the Old Testament. When Jonah goes to sleep, a storm arose. And here when Jesus sleeps, a storm arises. And yet when Jesus wakes, the storm goes to sleep. To the ancients, the sea was seen as a dangerous and scary place. It was a place of judgment. And Scripture repeatedly uses water in judgment terms. The sea is a place of judgment. We know that God used the waters to judge the world in the time of Noah. And we know that God used the sea to destroy Egypt, to destroy Pharaoh and his army in the Exodus. We also see how the sea judges Jonah in his time. And now the sea is threatening Jesus and his disciples. This is a recurring theme. And the language of the sea is often used in reference to God's wrath, to God's anger. And this is why there's a curious little phrase in Revelation 21.1 that maybe seems odd to our sensibilities because we go to vacation at the sea. We like the sea. We think the sea is beautiful, and it is. And when you read in uh, Revelation 21.1 where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. We might think that's a sad thing that the sea was no more. But what this is saying is judgment is no more. God's anger in his creation is no more. After the eschaton, when sin and death have been judged, the renewed creation no longer has a reminder of the sea of God's wrath. Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, and so in this sense there is no sea in the new creation. But again, this reminds us that the sea is threatening, the sea is scary, it's imposing. And the earthquake language here in verse 24 is significant in relation to the storm and to the violent sea that's here. There's a little bit of symbolism happening even about Jesus' future ministry here. There's three times that this word is used in relation to Jesus' ministry, the seismos or earthquake language. One is here, and if you're thinking carefully, you know that there's two other earthquakes in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 27 when he dies, and in Matthew 28 when he's resurrected, there's an earthquake, an earth-shattering event, a seismic historical event. And so the storm at the sea here is both an immediate test of the disciples' willingness to pay the cost of following Jesus, as well as an early picture of the judgment, death, and resurrection pattern that marked Jesus' ministry. Jesus goes to sleep in judgment, and he must be woken up if he is to save his disciples from the wrath of God. Moving on in verse 26, it says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the seas and wind obey him? Before rebuking the storm, Christ rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. Maybe they were thinking like the Israelites out in the desert. Did you bring us this far just to destroy us? Have you forgotten about us? Why are you asleep, Jesus? Why are you slow to answer? Why are you slow to action? And Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Then he turns to the weather and makes it all stop. But don't miss this. If you're out on the lake one afternoon and the wind is whipping things up and making the water rough, and finally towards evening the wind dies down, it can take hours before the water calms down. Those waves have to play themselves out before the water becomes calm. But what's remarkable is that the water is instantly calm. Jesus doesn't just stop the source of the wind and the waves. He stops the waves instantly. It's calm when he tells it to be calm. Even the waves are obeying King Jesus. And so the risen Christ has made a sudden, complete, and total end to the fury and to the wrath of the sea. And this isn't how nature normally works. This isn't something these guys have seen before. They might see the wind die down, but then they still have a job to stay safe in their boat. But now it all calms down at once. It's all peaceful. And the sudden shift from fury to peace has the disciples marveling. It says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? Moving on in verse 28, it says, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so we've just had this eventful trip on the sea. Jesus and the disciples arrive at the other side, And Jesus is encountered with this trifecta of uncleanness. What do we have? We have demon-possessed men in a graveyard with pigs close by. This is not a happy situation if you are Jewish. Everything about the situation is dirty and eerie, creepy. If we think that these demon-possessed men think of them spending their time in a graveyard, there could well be an ongoing kind of feedback loop. Think of how many of, I'm not really into the horror genre of movies, I understand some people are, I don't quite know why, but I know some people are. But the setting is always dark, right? It's nighttime, or they're in a creepy place like a graveyard, or something like that. Because darkness tends to attract darkness, right? And so do they go to the graveyard because they're dark? Or does the graveyard make them more dark? And it's probably both true. There's probably this ongoing feedback loop that darkness attracts darkness and makes it more dark. It's no wonder that the kids didn't want to pass by on their way to go visit mom and dad. They would have taken the long way around rather than be confronted with this. And the fierceness of these men was an obvious threat to the surrounding community. As it does say, they avoided the area. And again, we can ask some questions that the text doesn't immediately answer, but it starts to paint a picture. Did the demon possession give these men added strength? Did it give them added anger? Did it give them added speed? What made them all so scary? I think all these things are probably true. But either way, we have a picture of darkness and oppression that is intimidating to people in the surrounding area. 
Then it goes on to describe. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And it's interesting that the demons know who Jesus is. People are probably still trying to figure out who this guy is. But these demons know instantly. They address him properly. That he is the Son of God. They know. And we know this from the, gospel, or from the, the epistle of James as well. Where it says that even the demons believe and shudder. Demons know. Demons know what they're up against. Demons know who Jesus Christ is. And here we have a real-life example of how this plays out. The demons recognize who Christ is. They recognize that he is the Son of God. And then they ask him an interesting question. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Isn't that an interesting question? Have you come to torment us before the time? The demons know that their days are numbered and that their defeat is certain. They know this is the Son of God come into the world to stamp out darkness. And perhaps if you've ever wondered why there's such an intensification of demonic activity around the ministry of Jesus, this makes sense. They know. They know. Of course they're going to put up their last stand. And if you've ever faced an animal that's cornered and facing death, its fighting is filled with the kind of intensity that you don't normally see. If it's cornered, if it's scared, it will fight with the ferocity that it will not fight with otherwise. There is seemingly an increase in strength and of speed. And so the demons know what the incarnation of Christ means for them. They know it's game over. Which is why there's such an intensification of their attack in the time of Jesus. They're like a cornered rat knowing that their death is imminent. And the time of Christ's substitutionary death and world-shaking resurrection in victory is still going to be a few months away from this episode. But now they fear that Christ is cutting even those last few months short. Before the time, are you going to do this? Knowing that they're at the mercy of Christ the King, they beg to be put into the swine if they're going to be cast out of the two men. And what was the alternative? If they're cast out of the men, some sort of fate awaits them somewhere. And they see going into the pigs as being the preferable option. But what's the other alternative? And in Matthew it doesn't say, but in Luke's account we're given more information. You can thumb over to Luke if you want. But I'll read it out here. In Luke 8, 31, in this account it says, And they begged him not to command them to depart to the abyss. That's the alternate fate. The abyss. The place of punishment for evil spirits. Where the evil spirits are contained while they wait the final judgment to be cast forever into the lake of fire. And of course, going into the pigs looks good. And so Jesus says to them in verse 32, and he said, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down into the steep bank, into the sea, and drowned in the waters. Christ gives the demons permission to enter the pigs, and there must be a palpable sense of relief for them. Good. It's not over yet. We've got a little more time to roam and to do our stuff. A few more months of freedom before being consigned into the chains of doomy darkness, before going to the abyss. And they think of how short-lived their relief is. And this is really a picture for all sin and how self-destructive it is, how inward-turned it is. Sin is like a snake that starts to eat itself by the tail. It starts to consume itself. It destroys itself. 
In Proverbs, it says that all who hate me love death. Sin is literally a death wish. Hatred against God is a futile war. It is a literal death wish. And you see that with these demons. They go into the pigs, and what happens? The pigs go crazy, and they run and go kill themselves. And think there, too. Uh, in, in one of the other Gospels, it says that the number of pigs was about 2,000. There's enough demonic activity in two men to possess a pig of 2,000 demons. How tormented were these men? We don't know, but highly tormented. And these pigs run off the bank and into the water, and they drown and hasten their entry into the abyss that they so much dreaded. And Jesus and the disciples just lived through a prefiguring of God's wrath on the sea. They lived through a death and resurrection story in the boat, and now they're back on land, and these evil spirits run headlong into God's righteous judgment. And once again, it is the sea that is doing the killing and showing the fierce wrath of God's anger. The English commentator Alistair Roberts has also suggested another possibility of what's being pictured here, and that is of a scapegoat theme. And the fact that so many evil spirits are assigned to only two men may point to a custom that would have put the filth of the city on two men and then they were driven out of the city. So they may have well been the scapegoat for the city and all this evil is placed on them and they're sent out of the camp to suffer there by themselves. And if that idea is present in the story, then Christ is doing something additional here, which is giving us a glimpse into his new way that he is establishing for removing sin from the camp. In verse 33 and 34, it says, Then the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And the text doesn't say explicitly what is motivating them and begging them uh, and asking them to, to, to have Jesus leave the area, actually begging him to leave the area. And there's a few possibilities. Are they offended that Jesus has disrupted this potential scapegoat custom and is ushering a new economy for how to deal with evil and sin? Possible. Are they angry at the financial loss that's represented in losing their pig herd? Right? Certainly possible. That's their livelihood that just went into the to the water and died. Maybe it's some of each. But I think there's also another possibility. Perhaps they're terrified of a man who doesn't flinch from demonic activity. Maybe they're scared of a man who has that much power that he can do something like this. And I think this last reaction is plausible. Go back to Jesus calming the storm and the disciples standing in marvel. And you see in Matthew and Mark, both in their accounts, describe how turbulent this water is, how scary it is. And there's water coming over and they're scared of death despite being experienced fishermen. And then Jesus stops it and in Matthew it says they marvel. But in Mark's account, they go from having fear of the sea to having great fear of Jesus. The man who just did this is much scarier than that water. They move from fear to great fear at the holiness of Jesus Christ. I've enjoyed teaching apologetics at Miller this winter. And in the class, we've been looking at various atheists and people who try to discredit and criticize Christianity. And there's many of men on this historical hall of fame for atheism, for attacking Christianity. Men like David Hume, men like Friedrich Nietzsche, men like Karl Marx have all leveled their case against Christianity. They've all made their dislike of Christianity crystal clear. 
But despite their best efforts, they have this persistent frustration that men are incurably religious. They've shown all their work. In their mind, they've solved this. There is no religion. It's just superstitious. There is no God. And yet people still worship. Why? In their minds. Why? Why do men, despite all this logical argumentation we've given them, still bend the knee to God or to a God? They've tried their best to understand this, and one of their own took a psychological approach to see why men are incurably religious. Sigmund Freud came up with a hypothesis, and Freud's idea is essentially this. The world is a threatening place, and we learn how to deal with threats from other people. If someone comes onto my yard and they're angry with me, I might know how to negotiate with them or how to de-escalate the situation somewhat. But what I cannot do is negotiate with impersonal forces of nature. And so Freud said, because we're scared of nature, because we're scared of things that we can't do anything about, like cancer or tornadoes or earthquakes, what people have done through the ages is they've placed imaginary gods in these things. And if there's a god in a tornado, now I can negotiate with it. Okay? If cancer is a demonic thing, I can negotiate it. So Freud is saying we're personalizing things that we can't otherwise control as a way of calming our superstition about these things. And he would say Christianity is just a well-evolved method of negotiating with these gods of nature. Christians just boiled it down to one god. So we can negotiate with one god. So this is our way to get rid of fear in a cold and impersonal world that doesn't care whether we exist or not. <clears throat> so Freud, Marx, and these others believe that we superstitiously cling to God as a coping mechanism so that the natural world doesn't seem so scary to us. And the top thinkers of the day became convinced that the universe was either hostile to man or worse yet, it was completely indifferent to man. And like we said, cancer, lightning, fire, floods, tsunamis, they could all take us out at any moment, and we are weak. If you see the waves, and if you don't remember that, go watch on YouTube. Go watch that tsunami hit Japan. It's powerful. Powerful. You can't negotiate with something like that. So they held that religion was something man invented as a kind of opium, or a kind of drug, to help us cope with the universe that seems scary to us. But as we've seen the, the storm here threaten the lives of the disciples, we've seen demon-possessed men scaring others away, and we've seen pigs run into the water after the demons go into them. These are all scary things. They all threaten human safety and, safe, uh, and human life. And yet in the end, after Jesus calms the threats, while the people should be drawn to him, they're just as strongly repelled away from him. Any man who can get up from sleep and yell, stop, and the water and the winds instantly obey that voice is a force that we don't know, we don't understand. It's too big. And so no wonder the disciples are terrified. No wonder Jesus gets asked to leave town. There's also the one account where uh, the disciples haul in a big haul of fish. And what does Peter tell Jesus? What he should say is, hey, you know what? I like making money. You know how to fill my nets. Why don't we come up with a business arrangement? Every Tuesday morning, you come meet me in the water, and we're going to make a bunch of money together. What does Jesus... That would be our natural reaction, maybe. What does Peter do? 
please go away. I'm scared. Jesus, please leave. Your holiness intimidates me. That's the reaction here as well. They're marveled. They're afraid. Fear of nature goes to a great fear of the God-man. So Freud and Marx are wrong. Men didn't invent religion to escape the threat of nature. Men invented man-made religion to escape the threat of Christ's holiness. That's what we're trying to run away from, is a holy God. The power, the majesty, the supremacy, and the holiness of Christ are awesome, awesome things to behold. But they are a terror to those who have not bent the knee to King Jesus. They're a threat to those who refuse to repent of their sins and come for forgiveness. And yet, what an amazing comfort and consolation these things are for those who have put their hope in Christ, who have sought refuge in Christ by faith. His power is also a protection for those who are in Christ, for those whose sins are forgiven. His power is not intimidating to those of us who know him in a saving way. It's a protection. It's care. The cost of following Jesus is high indeed, but not nearly so high as the cost of not following him. And the storms of life will come. They inevitably do. And it is different for all of us. We've talked about people that we know and love with cancer this morning, or sometimes a a problem that's still not diagnosed. Sometimes it's in the form of difficult relationships. The storms of life will come. And if we're going to be faithful... The cost of following Jesus is high. It's scary. He doesn't stop the storm from happening in the first place. He doesn't make our life a cakewalk. But he's there with us, commanding all of it. And it's ultimately for our good. There's many times that Jesus may be silent. It may seem like he's doing nothing. But he is not far. And if this event at the sea is a precursor or an image of the death and resurrection that's actually going to happen. Think of how deafening that silence was. You followed this guy for years, and it looks promising. It looks like everything's going to unfold your way. This is the God-man who's come to earth, and then he's dead for three days. If that's not silence in a storm, I don't know what is. Jesus is very quiet at times. Maybe he's quiet in your life. And I know a number of us, through conversation, are dealing with some very difficult things. And sometimes it does seem like God is silent. And he's not quick to answer our prayers. But we've just seen, just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not doing anything. He is not far. And it's through our appeals and our pleas that Christ comes to our defense at the appropriate time. He never short-circuits this. It's always just-in-time salvation. It may seem like he's intervening too late, and from our perspective, it is often too late. I often say that if, if you're in the story with Jesus, it often seems like Jesus saves just after the nick of time. All hope is lost. Everything seems pointless. There's no way out of this mess. And then afterward, Jesus intervenes. After the storm starts to threaten is when Jesus intervenes. The water may be coming over the sides, and we may be perishing, but he is there offering just-in-time salvation. And if we put our trust in him, well, he displays the power in an awesome and intimidating way that makes us feel small. Ultimately, it's for our good. And if we go back to the reading that Tim gave this morning, the prophet Isaiah, he sees the holiness of God. 
in somewhat of a similar way that the disciples have just seen it. And it's terrifying. He says, I am undone. In the presence of a holy God, the prophet Isaiah has an emotional and mental breakdown. It's too wonderful. I cannot stand in front of the holiness of God. But notice also the assurance of pardon that Tim read this morning. Notice what God doesn't do. He doesn't say, yes, Isaiah, you're a worm. It's hopeless. Get used to the cold, hard facts of my wrath. But he also doesn't do what many of us are so quick to do and say, hey, Isaiah, it's no big deal. You like to sin, I like to forgive. Hey, it's a good arrangement, right? Sin's not such a big deal. We're not going to worry about all that hellfire and brimstone stuff. Sin's not a big deal. You just get a free pass, right? And isn't that the gospel of easy believism that is so prevalent where sin isn't addressed and people just assume God's this happy Santa Claus that just forgives on no basis whatsoever? What happens to Isaiah? God takes a coal from the burning and touches his lips. He's forgiven. He's purified. He's made holy. But it sure hurts for a little bit, doesn't it? Repentance hurts. Repentance is an acknowledgement that I can't do this on my own. I need a gospel outside of myself. But God is happy to provide it. The storm of God's wrath does not carry on for those who have been healed, for those who have been touched by His grace. And so this morning, I want to remind all of us, if you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way, be touched by the fire of His holiness. Be touched, be cleansed, be purified. Come to the Lord Jesus so that the sea of God's wrath is calmed, that it's peaceful, that you can know peace with God and peace with others. And for those of us who do know that peace, I would encourage all of us to press into it. Yes, cancer comes. Yes, divorce hits families. Yes, difficult relationships with siblings and parents happen. But Jesus is not far away. Call on him, and he rescues just in time. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us blind. You have not left us hopeless. You have not left us wandering around aimlessly. But you have given this for our instruction. Lord, and even the events, even the historical unfolding of your earthly ministry teaches us so much. It makes so much connection to the way that you've been preparing the earth and our hearts through the Old Testament times, through those pictures that you've given us of the kind of Savior, the kind of God-man that you're going to be. I also want to thank you for the way that you illustrate your holiness, the way you illustrate your cosmic changing events in history through your death and burial and resurrection and ultimately the ascension of your son to forgive us for our sins, to make peace on earth. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning. I pray that we would know the peace, that the storm would not be wasted, that we wouldn't despair that all there is is a storm and anger and wrath and difficulty, but also that we would see the glory of your peace, that we would move from that to call on you, that you would move and that we would experience that peace and then that we would behold what a wonderful God you are. What kind of a God does this? Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for making us clean. Lord, and I pray that as we go out to this week that we would be grateful for what you've done and that it would be contagious to those around us that we can see the blessing that peace with you brings in every aspect of our lives. Lord, I commit each person to your hands. 
and pray that you would bless us, feed us, strengthen us as we go out from here. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Christ came into a world groaning under the weight of the curse. This groaning takes shape in many forms, including natural disasters, disease, and demonic activity. In his earthly ministry, Christ pushes the darkness back step by step, taking dominion wherever he goes. His is a ministry of putting his enemies under his feet, like the psalmist declared centuries before. Christ points to his literal death and resurrection with a death and resurrection story at sea. He points to the final judgment as he simultaneously lifts the curse off two oppressed men and sends Satan's angels to their own self-imposed early grave. In all of this, he strikes awe into the hearts of men. True holiness is imposing, intimidating, scary, and threatening. It repels just as strongly as it attracts, which is why Jesus got the response he did during his earthly ministry. So our charge this week is to remember the power of his holiness. It is a dread to those in their sin and a comfort to those whose sin has been removed. If we are in Christ, then Christ is in us and he is working for our good. The storm may rage, the Lord may seem silent, but we are safe when we call on him. This week as we face whatever providence may have in store for us, we can rest assured that the Lord behind the providence is never worried, never uptight, and never at a loss for what he must do next. Christian, you are free to face the storm with a quiet confidence because the man who commands winds and waves is working for you. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them for every good work and word. Amen. And you may go in peace.